and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and I'm back with the second installment of our series Analyzing the Tales of Dunkin' Egg. And if you caught part one, then you know that means today I'll be diving into the Sworn Sword. The Sworn Sword is a bit longer than the Hedge Knight, not surprising if you know the tendency of George's tales to grow in the telling, just like those of one of his inspirations, J.R.R. Tolkien, did so many years ago. And there's plenty to analyze, from the growing relationship between Sir Duncan and his squire, to war, politics, social norms, history, and even a bit of romance. I'll start the episode with a bit of history, because this story marked the first significant introduction of the history of the Blackfire Rebellions, and following that, we'll take a look at the state of the realm and what Duncan Egg had been up to since we last saw them. After that, it'll be a reread-style recap and analysis of the story, and there's a lot to say, so bring a mug of tea, a skin of wine, or a flagon of ale to keep you company for that segment. And I'll end the episode with a theory based on one of the characters from the Sorn Sword, and look ahead at the future of Duncan Egg from both metatextual and intratextual viewpoint. But here's some housekeeping to get to before we start. In case you missed our announcement, Yoke Boy and I were married at the end of last year, so 2019 will not only bring the fifth anniversary of the podcast, but a whole new era for Radio Westeros. Before you can rejoin us, though, we do have some red tape to conclude, so for this episode, once again, I'll be at the helm, although you might recognize the voice of Robert from In Deep Geek, who kindly voiced Sir Eustace Osprey for us in this episode. I do want to note that we have an exciting year planned, and with your help, we hope to make this the best year for Radio Westeros yet. One new thing you might notice is the addition of exclusive episode artwork, starting with this series, and that's thanks to our longtime friend Calliope, and you can check it out and find out more at our website, RadioWesteros.com. And so on that note, we want to thank everyone who contributes in various ways to the podcast, including our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Kelly, Rory, Laura, Daniel, John Wargarian, Pepper, Whitney, and Sister Winter. Thanks so much, everyone. And if you'd like to contribute to Radio Westeros and find out more about patronage and the rewards we offer, which include shoutouts, early access, and a patron-exclusive episode, please head on over to patreon.com slash Radio Westeros. And now, it's time to hit the road with the Sworn Sword. If Damon had ridden over Gwen Corbray, if Fireball had not been slain on the eve of battle, if Hightower and Tarbeck and Oakheart and Butterwell had lent us their full strength instead of trying to keep one foot in each camp, if Manfred Lothston had proved true instead of treacherous, if Storms had not delayed Lord Bracken's sailing with the Meerish crossbowmen, if Quickfinger had not been caught with the stolen dragon's eggs. So many ifs, sir. Had any one come out differently, it could have all turned t'other way. Then we would be called the Loyalists, and the Red Dragons would be remembered as men who fought to keep the usurper Darren the Fallspawn upon his stolen throne, and failed.
In our previous episode, when discussing the Hedge Knight, I mentioned the fact that the Blackfire Rebellion wasn't a part of George's backstory until at least two years after the Hedge Knight was published. For that reason, there's no mention of the conflict in the Hedge Knight, in spite of the fact that it was a bare 13 years in the past, and its effects were still being felt across the realm, as we'll see in the story we're looking at today. It was only after A Clash of Kings was published that George decided that he needed to add more history to the story and started with fleshing out the story of Aegon the Unworthy. Along with the history of Aegon IV came the story of the Blackfire Sword and his bastard children. And while there were earlier hints that he was planning to have some kind of imposter scheme relating to the recent Targaryen overthrow, and thus may have had a nascent plan for a mystery branch of House Targaryen to play a role, as I said in the last episode, reading The Hedge Knight makes it clear that the story of the Blackfire Rebellions really only came into play when George decided to expand the series sometime around 2000. So the first mentions of Blackfires came in A Storm of Swords, with Stannis saying that someone named Damon Blackfire had died a traitor's death, and then Jaime telling Brienne about Ares. He had finally realized that Robert was no mere outlaw lord to be crushed at whim, but the greatest threat House Targaryen had faced since Damon Blackfire. And at this point, we don't know who Damon Blackfire even was, but we're beginning to understand that he had posed some threat to the Targaryens. Then, in the same book... Catelyn tells Rob a cautionary tale about legitimizing bastards. Aegon IV legitimized all his bastards on his deathbed, and how much pain, grief, war, and murder grew from that. The Blackfire pretenders troubled the Targaryens for five generations until Barristan the Bold slew the last of them on the Stepstones. So at this point, we can guess that Damon Blackfire was a bastard of Aegon IV, and then we get the end of the story, such as it is within A Storm of Swords, when Jamie's reading Barristan Selmy's entry in the White Book, and it says, Barristan, quote, slew Maelys the Monstrous, last of the Blackfire pretenders, in single combat during the War of the Ninepenny Kings. And clearly, as an aside, George had been very busy constructing history and backstory for his creation, since... All of these mentions come in lists or retellings of other things that had happened in the past. But while he didn't really flesh out the rebellions, at least in print, until years later, in 2001, he replied to a fan inquiry about Targaryen bastards with this information. Targaryen bastards have been given a number of different names over the years. The Blackfires are one specific branch, descended from Daemon Blackfire, a bastard son of Aegon IV the Unworthy, by one of the three sisters that Baelor the Blessed imprisoned in the Maidenval. Blackfire was also the name of Aegon the Conqueror's greatsword, a fabled blade of Valyrian steel passed from king to king, until Aegon IV chose to bestow it on Daemon instead of his legitimate son, Daron, whom he suspected was actually fathered by his brother, Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. Some felt that the sword symbolized the monarchy, so the gift was the seed from which the Blackfire rebellions grew. None of this is in the books yet, but it will be revealed gradually in future volumes. So, as promised, there was more to come, and the very first place we saw a significant level of detail about the causes, themes, and primary engagements of the Blackfire conflict would be in the story we're discussing today, which was first published in 2003. In The Sworn Sword, we'll hear about the final battle of that first rebellion and a number of the deciding factors, along with much of the fallout. 
to general reasons for Damon's decision to claim the throne are also raised, but there were things that still wouldn't be clarified for years to come, since, as noted, George does favor that gradual reveal. Speaking to Elio Garcia of Westeros.org in 2004, George would talk about Damon Blackfire's, quote, growing resentment at having the status of a bastard and what it meant. This is understandable given the general attitude that persists against bastards into the present story, and Aegon IV's declaration legitimizing his bastards could hardly be expected to wipe that out overnight, as we'll see in our analysis today. Another thing he mentioned was that Damon had counselors who urged him to rebel, chief among them Sir Quentin Ball, a.k.a. Fireball, who was a knight from House Ball in the Reach and had been the master-at-arms at the Red Keep. Apparently, King Daron earned his enmity by refusing to name him to his king's guard in spite of a promise from Aegon IV that Fireball would be named when an opening arose. Incidentally, George has said that Fireball was loosely inspired by Henry Hotspur Percy, a famous English knight from the late 14th century who was a powerful ally of House Lancaster, until they fell into dispute, at which point he led a brief rebellion that ended with his own death. Because of Hotspur's marriage to a member of a rival house within the royal Plantagenet family, this conflict, while having its own distinct origins, can be seen as a minor foreshadowing of the conflicts to come as the Lancasters fought their own cousins for control of the English throne in the Wars of the Roses, a conflict that obviously has great interest for A Song of Ice and Fire fans, since it's been noted to be one of George's primary real-life historical influences. And we'll hear a little more about Fireball when we discuss the Rebellion today, and much more still when we get to the Mystery Night. As far as filling in the details of the Blackfire conflicts, very little additional information would be revealed following the Sworn Sword for many years, since A Feast for Crows has but a single mention of the Blackfires, and other than some physical descriptions of the participants, fans had to wait until the publication of The Mystery Night in 2010 to find out more. And then, in 2011, A Dance with Dragons brought a relative feast of Blackfire backstory, and if fan theories are correct, then the arcs of John Connington and his mysterious son, Young Griff, and those of Tyrion Lannister and Illyrio Mopatis, where they intersect with them, were revealed as the reason for laying all this groundwork. The publication of The World of Ice and Fire in 2014 brought even more clarification of the history, and so here we are today. So we know that Damon Blackfire rose in rebellion against his brother, Daron II, according to George, because he chafed at his bastardy. But there were these persistent rumors that Daron himself was a bastard, the son of Aegon IV's brother, Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, who was known to love Queen Nerys. If this were true, it would put Daron and Damon on sort of equal footing, both bastards, both Targaryens on both sides, and directly descended from Viserys II. And that's where the significance of the sword really comes in, the symbolism of which really can't be underestimated. At the same time, there was a healthy dose of resentment between the two half-brothers due to Daron's decision to marry their sister Daenerys to Marin Martell, his own brother-in-law, instead of allowing her to marry Daemon, whom she loved. Prince Doran would say this in A Dance with Dragons. 
The whole realm knew that the girl loved Daron's bastard brother, Damon Blackfire, and was loved by him in turn. But the king was wise enough to see that the good of thousands must come before the desires of two, even if those two were dear to him. Barristan Selmy's thoughts were typically both more simple and more romantic. Damon Blackfire loved the first Daenerys and rose in rebellion when denied her. Now, we know that it was much more complicated than that, but the marriage of Daenerys clearly played some role in the outcome, just as Daron's own marriage to Mariah Martell and the influx of Dornish counselors that came along with it also played a role in alienating certain houses over to Daemon's cause. Daemon himself married Rohan of Tyrosh, as his father had wished, sometime after Daron ascended to the throne. They would have seven sons and at least two daughters, and it was this prolificness that would play the largest role in the Blackfires continuing to trouble the Targaryens for five generations, as Catelyn noted. Around 196 AC, Daemon was finally convinced that rebellion was the best course for him, and while the plotting was discovered and men were sent out to arrest him, Daemon narrowly escaped the Red Keep with the aid of Fireball and commenced open rebellion. With nearly half the houses in the realm declaring for Daemon, the civil war was bound to be fierce, bloody, and tragic. Some houses were split in two, certain of them by design, but others by dispute. Battles were fought in the Vale, the Reach, the West, and the Riverlands. Fireball killed Lord Lefford at the gates of Lannisport and then defeated Lord Daemon Lannister. Lady Penrose lost all but her youngest son at the crossing of the Mander, while Lord Bracken went across the narrow sea to hire a force of Mirish crossbowmen. Meanwhile, Lord Leo Tyrell was able to defeat some of the Blackfire forces in the Reach. Lord Butterwell of Whitewalls was the hand at the time, but his loyalty came into question when he attempted to sit the fence, and so he was replaced by Lord Hayford, under whose banner Sir Arlen of Pennytree would fight. It's worth pointing out that a number of these names will be familiar to us from the Ashford tourney in the Hedge Knight, where Damon Lannister, Leo Tyrell, and uh, Sir John Penrose were all present, not to mention Lord Bracken's son, Sir Otho. But in spite of his successes in the field, Sir Quentin Ball would be killed by a random archer nearly a year into the rebellion on the eve of what would be the final and decisive battle of the conflict. The two armies came together at an unnamed field, known to be near King's Landing, but as yet not specifically located on a map. Due to the heavy casualties that would be suffered there, the field was reputed to take on a red hue from all the blood, and the battle would become known as the Battle of the Red Grass Field. This battle not only ended Damon Blackfire's rebellion, but also forms the key backdrop to the action of the Sworn Sword. The rebel army was led by Damon himself, while on his left, Damon was supported by Lord Costain, and the right was led by Lord Shawnee and Damon's half-brother, Agor Rivers. Known as Bittersteel, Agor was another of Aegon IV's so-called great bastards, this one sired on Lady Barba of House Bracken. In the initial charge, Damon is said to have decimated Lord Donald Arryn's van. Cutting through Valemen, Damon at last came to Sir Gawain Corbray of the Kingsguard. The duel between these two men, wielding Blackfire and the Corbray Valyrian steel blade, Lady Forlorn respectively, is described as one of the greatest in history. Damon showed his colors as a truly gallant knight when, having gravely wounded Sir Gawain, he stopped the fight and had him carried from the field to the maesters.
Brynden Rivers, known as Bloodraven, was the bastard son of Lady Melissa Blackwood and King Aegon IV, another of the great bastards, legitimized by his father before his death, who had sided with his true-born brother, Daron. He bore the Targaryen blade Dark Sister, but his preferred weapon was a weirwood longbow, and he commanded a company of archers known as the Raven's Teeth. In addition to the well-known feud between the houses of their mothers, both Brynden and Aegor Rivers loved another of their half-siblings, Shera Seastar, daughter of Serenay of Lys, and she had rejected Bittersteel in favor of Bloodraven. The ancient enmity between House Bracken and House Blackwood, combined with this more recent slight, meant that in this battle there was almost certain to be a personal showdown. Bloodraven was able to lead his archers to a ridge that would become famous as the Weeping Ridge, and from there they had a clear view of Damon and the action with Sir Gawain. When those around Damon's standard paused to see to the wounded Kingsguard, Bloodraven was able to target Damon's eldest son Aegon, knowing that his half-brother would rush to his son's aid if he were wounded. And so he did. When Aegon fell, Damon went to him and was caught by seven shafts, finally falling himself. When his second son Aemon took up Blackfire, Bloodraven killed him as well. It would be suspected that Bloodraven used sorcery in the attack, and some black magic spell guided his arrows. And perhaps there was some magic involved, but many years later, he would indicate that he loved Damon Blackfire, so we have to imagine that there was some personal conflict there as well. The death of Damon and his sons led to a near rout by the rebellers, but Bittersteel was able to rally the forces from the right. The tide of battle next brought him and Bloodraven together, and their duel is said to be second only to the one between Damon and Corbray. However, it was at this point that Prince Baylor Breakspear arrived from the rear with a force of Stormlanders and Dornishmen. His brother Prince Makar had been able to rally the vanguard to form a shield wall, and the rebel army was trapped between Baylor's cavalry and Makar's wall in what would become famously known as a hammer and anvil maneuver. The rest was red slaughter. It's unknown how many men were in the opposing armies to start, but it's said that 10,000 men died that day. It's also said the battle was a near thing, that there were several moments where everything could have swung in the opposite direction, as we'll hear when we discuss the story. And it's worth noting here that the metatextual influence of the descriptions of the Battle of Redgrass Field can be found in George's self-declared favorite fantasy series of all time, The Lord of the Rings. As many of you will know, in The Return of the Kings, the armies of Gondor and Rohan fight a decisive battle against the forces of Mordor, known as the Battle of Pelennor Fields. And the description of one of the decisive maneuvers at Pelennor will sound very familiar to fans of the Sworn Sword. It says... East rode the knights of Dal Amroth, driving the enemy before them. South strode Aemir and his shield wall, and men fled before his face, and they were caught between the hammer and the anvil. In addition to that similarity, the description of the field after battle as the sun went down is stunningly similar to Sir Eustace Osgrey's poetic memory of how red grass looked, right down to the red grass. We know that George owes much to Tolkien, like we all do, and sometimes reading the two texts side by side can be extremely revealing in that light. So, following the deaths of Damon and his sons, Bittersteel escaped with Blackfire, and along with Damon's surviving family and a number of the chief rebels, fled to the free cities, 
where their plotting would continue to vex their cousins in Westeros for many years to come. Those who remained were welcomed back into the king's peace only when they had given hostages, been stripped of lands and titles, and generally humbled and abased for their crimes. These punishments will form the core of resentments that will simmer below the surface of Westerosi politics for many years to come and are one of the main themes of the story we're looking at today. Before we dive into the Sorn Sword, though, let's catch up on Duncan Egg and what's been going on in the realm in the year or so since we last saw them. What's a hedge knight to do when even the hedges are brown and parched and dying? Since we last saw Duncan Egg, a year and a half has passed, although within the story, Dunk will tell Sir Benis that Sir Arlen is two years dead. The year is 2010 AC. It was spring in the hedge night, and now in the Sworn Sword, it's high summer, and the country is gripped by drought, currently entering its second year. This story finds the pair in the reach again. Dunk nears seven feet tall, and Egg is ten years old. They've traveled far and seen many places, and much has transpired in the realm. At the end of the hedge night, Prince Baylor Breakspear was killed in Dunk's Trial of Seven. As the eldest son of Daron II, he had held the title of Prince of Dragonstone and was the acknowledged heir to the Iron Throne, as well as his father's hand. Following his death, his eldest son, Valar, became heir and apparently also served as his grandfather's hand. However, in the year following the Ashford tourney, tragedy would once again strike the Targaryen dynasty and the realm. 209 to 210 AC would become known as the Year of the Great Spring Sickness, when a plague struck Westeros with such virulence that tens of thousands of souls died, including 40% of the population of King's Landing alone. Because the Vale and Dorne seemed to have been spared after closing their access roads and ports, while major port cities like Lannisport, Old Town, and the capital had the worst of it, it's assumed that the disease entered, as plagues so often do, on board ships, and spread quickly from there. Septon Sefton will tell Dunk that a man could wake up healthy in the morning and be dead by nightfall, and maesters were hard-pressed to find any sort of treatment. He'll also paint a picture of the horrors of King's Landing at the height of the sickness. So many died so quickly there was no time to bury them. They piled them in the dragon pit instead, and when the corpses were ten feet deep, Lord Rivers commanded the pyromancers to burn them. The light of the fires shone through the windows, as it did of yore when living dragons still nested beneath the dome. By night, you could see the glow all through the city, the dark green glow of wildfire. The color green still haunts me to this day. They say the spring was bad in Lannisport and worse in Old Town, but in King's Landing it cut down four of ten. Neither young nor old were spared, nor rich nor poor nor great nor humble. Our good high septon was taken, the God's own voice on earth, with a third of the most devout, and near all our silent sisters. His grace King Daron, sweet Materis and bold Velar the hand. Oh, it was a dreadful time. By the end, half the city was praying to the stranger. So, among the dead were High Septon and scores of the servants of the faith in the capital, including the daughter of Sir Eustace Osgrey, and, most significantly, especially given the reputed immunity of the blood of the dragon to disease, the king himself and his two grandsons, Valar and his twin brother, Materis. 
While it's not specified who all died first, it's fairly safe to assume that Daron outlived his grandsons, since following his death, his second son, Ares, would be named king. And since we know that King Ares and Bloodraven would oversee the fallout of the plague in King's Landing, we can also assume that all three of them died relatively early in the Year of Sickness. These deaths are definitely an interesting development in the annals of Targaryens and disease, since in Fire and Blood, Gildane indicates that the death of Princess Daenerys during the Shivers of 60 AC was an anomaly of the highest order, stating Targaryens did not get sick. Since Aenar the Exile first staked his claim to Dragonstone, that had been known. Targaryens did not die of pox or the bloody flux. They were not afflicted with red spots or brown leg or the shaking sickness. They would not succumb to worm bone or clotted lung or sour gut or any of the myriad pestilences and contagions that the gods, for reasons of their own, see fit to loose on mortal men and women. There was fire in the blood of the dragon, it was reasoned, a purifying fire that burned out all such plagues. And in spite of Princess Daenerys' death, and the death of her sister Miguel from Grayscale many years later, and the deaths of King Daron and his two closest heirs during the spring sickness, this belief about immunity from disease would persist into the 4th century when another Daenerys would tell Barristan Selmy in Marine, I am the blood of the dragon. Have you ever seen a dragon with the flux? Her thoughts would continue... Viserys had oft claimed that Targaryens were untroubled by the pestilences that afflicted common men, and so far as she could tell, it was true. She could remember being cold and hungry and afraid, but never sick. While one could make the case that Viserys misled his sister or had been misled himself, and that the maesters of old were also mistaken, Gildane seems very certain of his history, and the reaction of Jaehaerys and Alysanne to their daughter's death supports his assertion. One might be better off considering Jaehaerys' reaction to his daughter's illness. It says, of the night she fell ill, Near dawn, Jaehaerys bolted to his feet, shouting that a dragon was needed, that his daughter must have a dragon. And ravens took wing for Dragonstone, instructing the dragon keepers there to bring a hatchling to the Red Keep at once. Now, given that the known fatalities, Daenerys, Miguel, Daron, Materis, and Valar, had no dragons of their own, perhaps Jaehaerys was right, and it's bonding with an actual dragon that prevents sickness from taking root within their riders, which might have interesting implications in the current story if we consider the possibilities of a grayscale epidemic and who will and will not be immune. Meanwhile, Back in the 3rd century, Ares was the most bookish of Darren's four sons, a clever man, but no warrior, and more interested in scrolls and esoterica than in the business of ruling. He was also reputed to be uninterested in his conjugal responsibilities with his wife, his cousin Eleanor Penrose, with whom he had no children, and in fact there was some doubt as to whether the marriage had ever even been consummated. Such an aloof, unrelatable man, who was apparently not bothered with the usual concerns of kingship and dynastic fortification, was bound to be a less-than-popular king, especially given recent events and the case that had been made against his own father being less-than-kingly. 
To make matters worse, Ares named his uncle Brynden Rivers, Bloodraven, as his hand and left the day-to-day management of the realm in his hands. Now, Bloodraven was reviled by many as a kinslayer for his role in the deaths of Daemon Blackfire and his twin sons Aegon and Aemon at the Battle of Redgrass Field, and he had a reputation as a sorcerer besides. The riddle, how many eyes does Bloodraven have, a thousand eyes in one, referred both to his own missing eye, a result of that duel with his brother Aegor Rivers at the Redgrass Field, and the apparently supernatural knowledge of the goings-on at Core and in the realm that he leveraged in his secondary role as Spymaster. He's an absolutely fascinating character that we'll get to talk about in much more detail when it comes to covering the Mystery Knight, although his name will come up quite a few times in this episode as well. With regard to the Spring Sickness, while Bloodraven may have been unpopular, It can't be denied that he acted with great sense to prevent the further spread of disease in King's Landing by isolating and burning the corpses of the plague dead. So now, let's continue setting the stage and catching up on what Duncan had been up to since we saw them last, while this terrible plague has been ravaging the land. The ending of the Hedge Knight had the pair resolving to head to Dorne, ostensibly in search of the puppeteers, who had played such a significant role in that story, but who rather sensibly had vanished from Ashford in the wake of Dunk's altercation with Prince Arion. It seems like Duncan Egg accompanied a party of Dornish merchants over the Red Mountains through the Prince's Pass, which isn't too great a distance south of Ashford, to Vaith, a much longer distance across the hot white sands. Since Baylor Breakspear and his father died in the same year, 209 AC, and we know that Dorne closed its borders during the sickness, it's likely that they made that crossing very soon after the Ashford tourney. They remained in Dorne for the balance of the spring, nearly a year, thereby missing out on the dangers of the spring sickness. They stayed long enough at Vaith for Dunk to somehow insult Lady Vaith, who Egg indicates was mad anyway, and is apparently the same Casella Vaith who had been Aegon the Unworthy's hostage and mistress prior to his ascent to the throne. Dunk thinks that they had, quote, slept in stables, inns, and ditches, broken bread with holy brothers, whores, and mummers, and chased down a hundred puppet shows. But failing to find any trace of Tanzel too tall, they ultimately traveled by pole boat down the Green Blood to the Planky Town, where they took ship for Old Town. Old Town had been one of the cities relatively hard hit by the sickness, so we can be fairly certain that it had passed by the time they made this journey, as Dunk taking Egg into that kind of danger seems very unlikely. They arrived in Old Town at least a year and a half before the beginning of this story, where they met with Egg's brother, Eamon. Regarding Eamon and the visit to Old Town, there are several things of note. It was Eamon who gifted them with the mule maester when they left Old Town to replace the old stot chestnut who had died crossing the white sands of Dorne. He also measured Dunk and found him to be an inch shy of seven feet, although Dunk also wonders if he's grown since then, since it's the one thing Sir Arlen always said he did very well. It's interesting to consider the privileges Aemon Targaryen must have had, even as a novice of the Citadel, since it's not very likely he received Egg publicly as his brother. The gift of a mule to a hedge knight and a squire must have seemed unusual indeed, and I really wish we knew more about that visit. So by the time Dunk and Egg leave Old Town, as mentioned, the realm is in the grip of a drought, the reach is baking, including the arbor, and we're told... 
The Kingswood is one great tinderbox, and fires rage there night and day. It's noted that the small folk blame Aries and Bloodraven for the drought, which must have begun shortly after they came to power. Vagrancy is becoming an issue, and lawlessness. The story opens with two dead men hanging in a crow cage at a crossroad, and Dunk thinks that lords are less tolerant of lawbreakers now than ever due to the drought, and his thoughts turn to Lord Bloodraven and to blame. The realm was full of lawless men these days. The drought showed no signs of ending, and small folk by the thousands had taken to the roads, looking for some place where the rain still fell. Lord Bloodraven had commanded them to return to their lands and lords, but few obeyed. Many blamed Bloodraven and King Ares for the drought. It was a judgment from the gods, they said, for the Kinslayer is accursed. So, that's basically our first measure of how much Lord Rivers is hated and feared. He's not only an albino and a bastard, but a kinslayer and a sorcerer, a reputation he evidently did little to discourage. Everything about him was different, which would make most people very nervous. That he was highly capable can't be denied, because while all this domestic turmoil was going on, at the same time, he must have had to maintain his focus on Tyrosh, where, quote, Bittersteel and the sons of Damon Blackfire were hatching plots. Many of the hostages that had been taken to King's Landing in the wake of the first Blackfire Rebellion had died in the spring sickness, leaving their families relatively free to turn their thoughts to new rebellions, something to keep our eyes on in the next installment. To add to the general feel of chaos in the realm, as we'll see when we recap the story, the Ironborn are raiding the West Coast, reaching as far south as the Arbor, while Dagon Greyjoy will likely become more significant to the plot of a future Duncan Egg story, as we'll discuss later in this episode. At this point, he's only just begun raiding places like Fair Isle and Little Dosk, from which environ Duncan Egg have just returned as the story begins. Finally, we're told that Lord Bracken is dying in the Riverlands, and with his eldest son dead in the spring, his younger son, Sir Otho, known as the Brood of Bracken, stands to succeed. Otho had made an appearance at the Ashford tourney, where he declined to stand with Dunk, who recalled how Sir Otho had slain Lord Quentin Blackwood three years past during a tourney at King's Landing. Given the long-standing feuding between the two houses, such a situation would almost certainly bring armed conflict. And since the hand, Lord Rivers, was a Blackwood on his mother's side, it was widely speculated the crown would either aid the Blackwoods or look the other way. It certainly didn't help matters that Bittersteel, Bloodraven's half-brother and enemy, known to be plotting with the Blackfires in Tyrosh, was a scion of House Bracken. So, the realm is almost literally a powder keg. Robbers and vagrants plague the roads, ironborn the coast, political conflict seems like to boil over at every turn, and the king just seems uninterested in it all. The hand, a reputed sorcerer, seems to prefer a rule of fear, while the drought has set the forests ablaze and left the small folk at risk of famine and more disease, not to mention armed conflict. And this is the situation as our story begins on a summer day as Duncan Egg return to Standfast from their errand to Dosk. In the next segment, we'll recap and review the full story of the Sorn Sword, and we'll see that our attention is drawn immediately to the dryness, the importance of water, and the blazing summer sun. What's the best mattress for you? Well, if you're an egg or a kitten, check out the competition. 
But if you're a human person, put your body on a nectar mattress. As well as award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Might be this starts with water, but it'll end with blood. So, as mentioned, the story begins with Duncan Egg at a crossroads, with two dead men hanging in a crow cage above. Egg seems fascinated by this situation and begins to talk about outlaws, which reflects as much on his innocence as on the sense of romanticism that songs about outlaws convey. Dunk thinks grimly that the reality is something different and reminds Egg that they must be on their way. Their new mule, Maester, is carrying two huge wine casks and they're returning to a place called Standfast from a town called Dosk. Now, Dosk will turn out to be a trading village near the coast about three days' ride from Standfast. Stanfast is the home of Sir Eustace Osgrey, a landed knight to whom Dunk has recently sworn his sword. Sir Eustace is an old man and lives a simple life on the border of poverty with but two men-at-arms in his service, Dunk and another knight called Sir Benis of the Brown Shield. Dunk displays an appalling sense of direction at the crossroads, having to ask his squire, and not for the last time, which way they're heading. But he still has that wise voice in his head that's one part Sir Arlen, one part... Prince Baylor and one part pure Sir Duncan. Dunk is sweating profusely in the ferocious heat and thinking about water. The importance of water is made clear as we see dusty, sun-baked roads and fields, crops withering on their vines, and human and beast alike longing for respite and cool refreshment. The dead men and Dunk's thoughts about small folk taking to the road and lawlessness becoming common serve to underscore the importance of water to this agrarian, pre-industrial economy of Westeros. Water is life, and without it, life becomes increasingly fragile, and the king's peace is in greater peril each day. In this type of situation, hedge knights might be in greater demand for masters who could afford them, but they were probably just as likely to turn robber, only now they'd have both an easier and a harder time of it, with all those people on the roads providing at once easy prey and greater competition for resources. Lucky as he is to have found employment, Dunk is reluctant to lose his dignity as a sworn sword by doing something as uncouth as taking his tunic off in spite of the heat. But as much as he sweats and thinks of his own dishevelment, his squire doesn't appear bothered by much more than the length of the journey. While on the one hand, it says the boy's ragged clothing and dusty face made him appear, quote, just like the stable boy he wasn't, and not at all like who he really was. A moment later... Tunk thinks enviously that Egg doesn't really sweat. The boy looked cool and dry, more dusty than sweaty. He never sweated much. He liked the heat. In Dorn, he went about bare-chested and turned brown as a Dornishman. It is his dragon blood, Dunk told himself. Who ever heard of a sweaty dragon? 
And that's a fair point, but all of this really just serves to underscore Sir Duncan's own discomfort and his growing anticipation of a good soak in the cool stream outside of Stanfast, which they're fast approaching. And when at last they do arrive, we're introduced to Sir Bennis. It says, The brown knight looked just as he had when they left. Worse, he smelled the same as well. He wore the same garb every day. Brown breeches, a shapeless rough-spun tunic, horsehide boots. When armored, he donned a loose brown surcoat over a shirt of rusted mail. His sword belt was a cord of boiled leather, and his seamed face might have been made from the same thing. His head looks like one of those shriveled melons that we passed. Even his teeth were brown, under the red stains left by the sour leaf he liked to chew. Amidst all that brownness, his eyes stood out. They were a pale green, squinty, small, close-set, and shiny bright with malice. So Dunk is explaining why they're returning with only two casks of wine instead of four, that the Ironborn raided Little Dosk and they had to go all the way to Dosk, where wine was becoming scarce since the drought is even affecting the arbor now as well. When Egg interrupts, the water is gone, he says. That stream Dunk had been looking forward to soaking in had dried up in the short span of days since they went on their way. In fact, when Dunk begins to investigate, he finds rocks are still damp underneath, and there are dead fish that can't have been dead more than a day. He concludes that the water had literally dried up overnight, and that something isn't right here. Throughout all of his questioning and investigating, Sir Bennis is complaining and tells him to leave it be. Just tell Sir Eustace the bare minimum, give him his wine, and move on. And in fact, if his physical description weren't unpleasant enough, Bennis's words to Dunk here certainly reveal him to be a thoroughly unpleasant man. He calls their employer Sir Useless, and in spite of Dunk's insistence that he himself be called Sir Duncan the Tall, he uses the familiar Dunk. And because of that, we also find out that the two have history together. He laughs at the Duncan the Tall, but agrees that Dunk is definitely taller than he used to be. And when Dunk starts asking questions about the water, he mocks him as Dunk the Lunk. And we see why Sir Duncan is so insistent on his full name being used. That nickname taps into Dunk's past, and he thinks, Dunk the Lunk, thick as a castle wall. From Sir Arlen, the words had been affectionate. He'd been a kindly man, even in his scolding. In the mouth of Sir Bennis of the Brown Shield, they sounded different. So eventually we'll learn that Dunk and Sir Arlen had ridden with Bennis when they and some other hedge knights were hired by a Dornish merchant to accompany him from Lannisport to the Prince's Pass. Bennis was a bully even then, full of taunts and vicious pinches, and when one of the other knights in their party went missing en route, it was suspected he'd been murdered by Bennis after a quarrel. Determined to solve the mystery of the missing water, Dunk sends Egg on ahead to Stanfast with the wine and turns upstream to investigate. Sir Bennis follows, arguing the whole time and saying that he's coming along to keep Dunk from getting hanged, since the opposite side of that stream is, quote, Spiderland. And as for the spiders, it says, Dunk wanted no trouble with the Lady of Coldmoat. At Stanfast, you heard ill things of her, the Red Widow she was called, for the husbands she had put in the ground. Old Sam Stoops said she was a witch, a poisoner, and worse. Two years ago, she had sent her knights across the stream to seize an Osgrey man for stealing sheep. When my lord rode to Coldmoat to demand him back, he was told to look for him in the bottom of the moat, Sam had said. She'd sown poor Dake in a bag of rocks and sunk him. 
"'Twas after that Sir Eustace took Sir Bennis into service "'to keep them spiders off his land." So this seems like a good time for a brief digression on the history of Stanfast and House Osgrey and their neighbors, the Webbers of Coldmoat. House Osgrey is an ancient house, once sworn to the Gardner Kings of the Reach. A thousand years before the conquest, they were marshals of the North March and held the border between the Reach and the Westerlands. Their castle at Stanfast, where Sir Eustace now resides, is really not more than a watchtower and was once one of their lesser holdings. House Osgrey's original seat was Coldmoat, raised by one Lord Perwin the Proud in the centuries before the conquest, and still bearing the checky lion of their sigil carved into its face to this day. Sir Eustace will tell Donk the story of one of his ancestors, Sir Wilbert Osgrey, known as the Little Lion, who faced an invasion by the King of the Rock, Lancel Lannister, at a time when his brothers, one of them presumably the current lord, were away with King Giles III Gardner, fighting a war with the Stormlanders. Sir Wilbert met the invaders and told King Lancel to turn back. Come no farther, it says he told them. You are not wanted here. I forbid you to set foot upon the reach. But King Lancel ordered his army forward, and what happened next is a duel that certainly sounds worthy of a song. They fought for half a day, the Gold Lion and the Checky. The Lannister was armed with a Valyrian sword that no common steel can match, so the little lion was hard-pressed, his shield in ruins. In the end, bleeding from a dozen grievous wounds, with his own blade broken in his hand, he threw himself headlong at his foe. King Lancel cut him near in half, the singers say. But as he died... The little lion found the gap in the king's armour beneath his arm and plunged his dagger home. When their king died, the westerman turned back and the reach was saved. But in spite of past glories, following the Field of Fire, the Gardner line was extinguished, and Highgarden was given to the Tyrells and became a part of Aegon Targaryen's newly forged kingdom. There was no longer any need for marshals of the North March, and the Osgreys themselves became lesser lords. Then, in Magar the Fourth's reign, Lord Ormond Osgrey spoke out against the suppression of the poor fellows and the warrior's sons. Magor responded by taking Coldboat from House Osgrey and, going by what we learn later, presumably at the same time, bestowing it upon House Weber and removing the Osgrey's lordly rights, reducing them to the status of landed knights. We don't know anything about the origin of House Weber, but in the present, they occupy Coldmoat, which is a medium-sized castle, and raise some of the finest horses in the Reach. Their sigil is described as a black field with a silver cobweb and a red spider, explaining why the residents of Coldmoat are referred to as spiders. And in the recent past, Lord Wyman Weber had apparently maintained good relations with Sir Eustace, until Eustace suggested a match between his son, Adam, and Wyman's daughter, Rohan. Lord Wyman's refusal and subsequent laughter with Lord Lucas Inchfield, overheard by Sir Eustace, wounded his pride so much that he cut ties between the two families. We'll eventually learn that the two men fought on opposite sides of the first Blackfire Rebellion, but in the early stages of the story, Eustace is very cagey about his past. While he opens up to Dunk about certain things, he deliberately leaves out other details so as to gain Dunk's sympathy. 
One thing we learn early on is that Eustace had three sons, and they all died at the red grass field 15 years previously. The story tells us, They died good deaths, fighting bravely for the king, Sir Eustace told Dunk, and I brought them home and buried them among the blackberries. His wife was buried there as well. Whenever the old man breached a new cask of wine, he went down to the hill to pour each of his boys a libation. To the king, he would call out loudly, just before he drank. Now, naturally, Dunk, being a newcomer, assumes the king Sir Eustace is toasting is the current king, or perhaps Daron, who was king when the boys died. What he never suspects is that Eustace is referring to Damon Blackfire, and that his toasting is a secret and defiant show of support for House Blackfire. Raising a glass to a king across the water is highly reminiscent of a real-life tradition, that of the Jacobites, who were supporters of the Stuart rulers of Scotland, England, and Ireland, who were deposed after the glorious revolution in the 17th century. The Jacobites would pass their toast glass over a cup or bowl of water to symbolize their support for their king in exile, a tradition that apparently still lingers in parts of Scotland to this day. So that's a bit of background on House Osgrey and House Weber, although, as usual, it will turn out to be a little more complicated than at first revealed. With that in mind, let's rejoin Dunk on his quest to solve the mystery of the missing water. Although he doesn't want to cause any trouble with the neighbors, when they reach the Osgrey forest known as Wattswood and find that the Osgrey side of the stream is choked with weeds and brambles, they do cross over to the Coldmoat side and continue on. And within a half a league, it says, they found the dam. Dunk thinks, they're stealing our stream. While Sir Bennis's amusement during the whole process suggests that he might have already known or guessed what had actually happened to the stream. And then, like all good bullies, Bennis decided that a little fear is the only answer for dealing with the men who were there digging ditches with which to divert the waters of the new pool to Lady Weber's fields. It says, Bennis drew his sword and said, See what you went and did, Lunk. Couldn't you have said that the stream dried up? Nope. Might be this starts with water, but it'll end with blood. Yours and mine, most like. Well, no help for it now. There's your thrice damned diggers. Best we put some fear in them. And so Dunk and Bennis rode forward, on Coldmoat land, to confront the men at the dam. After demanding to know where the dam came from, Bennis demanded the men, 22 or so laborers, take it down. When they naturally refused, and after quite a few angry words, Bennis ended up cutting one of the men on the cheek. A lesson is all, he'd later tell Sir Eustace, but one with grave consequences. Dunk tried to take charge of the situation when blood was shed by his comrade, trying to prevent further violence by telling the diggers to run and telling them, We meant no harm to you. All we want is our water. Tell your lady that. On the ride back to Stanfast, Dunk argues with Bennis that bloodshed was unnecessary, but Bennis is actually regretting that he hadn't killed the whole lot of them. To Dunk's shock about this, Bennis points out that if he had killed them all, there'd be no one to tell the truth of what happened at the dam. This indicates that he clearly knows he was in the wrong for riding uninvited onto Coldmoat Land and breaking the king's peace, no matter what the reason. And with 22 witnesses, the Lady of Coldmoat was unlikely to let this transgression go unpunished. 
While Bennis goes on doing his best to blame Dunk for investigating the stream, Dunk thinks about Bennis. He may have ridden with Sir Arlen once, but that was years and years ago. The man has grown mean and false and craven. And then arriving at Stanfast, there's a confrontation between Egg and Bennis, which leads to the usual theme of Egg being cheeky to someone who has no idea who he really is, causing Dunk to think that tongue of his will get him hurt one day. Then Dunk and Bennis go directly to Sir Eustace, where Bennis, having spent the whole afternoon mocking Dunk for his curiosity and for even bothering to investigate, proceeded to take partial credit for discovering the problem in the first place. Hearing the story, Sir Eustace was both sad and defiant, commenting that the stream had been known as the Checky Water for centuries out of mind, a name taken from the Checky design of the Osgrey sigil. Eustace resolves, This cannot be born, sirs. The woman will not have my water. She will not have my Checky Water. To try to temper his resolve, Dunk then relates the story of Sir Bennis's actions at the dam. Sir Eustace is displeased and knows Lady Rohan will come for Bennis. Dunk suggests appealing to Lord Rowan for judgment, which Sir Eustace rejects on account of Lord Rowan's sister being married to Lord Wyman's cousin, Wendell. Instead, he decides they must prepare for a violent conflict and instructs Dunk to summon the small folk. The Red Widow, as he terms Rohan, must be taught that, quote, the Checky Lion still has claws. So that's an interesting turn of phrase there. Half a century before the Red Lion of Castamere would try to teach the same lesson to the Golden Lion of Casterly Rock, whose occupants at the time, moreover, would be related to Lady Rohan. But more on that later. Now is a good time to take a closer look at what we're told in the story regarding Lady Rohan and why she's known as the Red Widow. In spite of the fact that he had apparently once desired a match between the lady and his youngest son, Sir Eustace tells Duncan Bennis, The woman has a spider's heart. She murdered three of her husbands, and all her brothers died in swaddling clothes. Five they were, or six, mayhaps. I don't recall. They stood between her and the castle. Egg would later claim it was four husbands she'd murdered, and that they were all poisoned. In addition to the brothers Eustace suggested she'd done away with in her childhood, Egg also claims she's killed her own children. Whenever she gives birth, a demon comes by night to carry off the issue. Sam Stoops' wife says she sold her babes unborn to the Lord of the Seven Hells, so he'd teach her his black arts. When Dunk protested that highborn ladies don't do such things, Egg reminded him, how little he knows of highborn ladies, and then casually repeats a similar rumor that persists in his own family. Lady Shearer does. Lord Bloodraven's paramour. She bathes in blood to keep her beauty. And of course, he's talking about Shearer Seastar, the youngest of Aegon the Unworthy's great bastards who had chosen her brother Bloodraven over Bittersteel, and as Lady Rohan herself would ultimately address the reason why she herself had carefully cultivated her fearsome reputation, Perhaps we should retain an open mind about the reputations of both Shira and her lover, Lord Bloodraven. And that's because while this particular story makes it plain that Bloodraven is assumed by many to be a sorcerer and reviled as a kinslayer, Egg would remind Dunk that first and foremost, he's considered a bastard, no matter what Aegon the Unworthy had declared. When defending his father's retreat to Summerhall in a wrath after his brother Ares named Bloodraven as his hand instead of Makar, Egg would declare, He's a sorcerer and baseborn besides. 
and when Doc protested that Lord Rivers had been legitimized, Egg doubled down. The old High Septon told my father that King's laws are one thing, and the laws of the gods another. True-born children are made in a marriage bed and blessed by the father and the mother, but bastards are born of lust and weakness, he said. King Aegon decreed that his bastards were not bastards, but he could not change their nature. The High Septon said all bastards are born to betrayal. Damon Blackfire, Bittersteel, even Bloodraven. Lord Rivers was more cunning than the other two, he said, but in the end he would prove himself a traitor too. The High Septon counseled my father never to put any trust in him, nor in any other bastards, great or small. And this, of course, is the familiar old Westerosi saw about bastards being treacherous by nature, but Dunk is disturbed by it and asks Egg if it's ever occurred to him that he might be a bastard. Dunk knows nothing of his background, after all, and would Egg think less of him if he were? It's one of those moments of philosophy between the two where it's clear just how much they're learning from each other. And we learn something, too, about Dunk's longing for family and just why he might one day want to head north. There was a pot shop in King's Landing where I used to sell them rats and cats and pigeons for the brown. The cook always claimed my father was some thief or cut purse. Most like I saw him hanged, he used to tell me, but maybe they just sent him to the wall. When I was squiring for Sir Arlen, I would ask him if we couldn't go up that way some day to take surface at Winterfell or some other northern castle. I had this notion that if only I could reach the wall, might be I'd come on some old man, a real tall man, who looked like me. So it's a sweet fantasy that Dunk's father might be waiting for him at the wall, a man of the Night's Watch, now serving honorably, having washed out the stain of his past. And it does say much and more about Duncan Egg's eventual direction, Dunk's longing for male role models, at the same time while offering an answer to the question of what it takes to wipe out certain sins. As for Shira and Bloodraven, we have a potent reminder of the prejudice they would face in their day-to-day lives, and have to wonder if they, like Lady Rohan, are choosing to cultivate their own fearsome reputations as a shield against the hurt they might suffer otherwise. Meanwhile, back at Standfast, Eustace had ordered Dunk to summon the levy, such as it was, and it truly wasn't much, since Standfast only supported three small villages. In the end, only eight men would arrive at the tower in answer to the summons. And to Egg's dismay at learning he's expected to assist these men in their training, Dunk replies with more of that folksy wisdom that many royal princes are in want of, and the sum of which, when he became a man, would lead to Aegon being a highly enlightened prince and later king. Dunk says, Egg, these men may seem fools to you. They won't know the proper names for bits of armor, or the arms of great houses, or which king it was who abolished the lord's right of the first night. But treat them with respect all the same. You are a squire born of noble blood, but you're still a boy. Most of them will be men grown. A man has his pride, no matter how low-born he may be. You would seem just as lost and stupid in their villages, and if you doubt that, go hoe a row or shear a sheep and tell me the names of all the weeds and wildflowers in Watts Wood. And this is advice certainly worthy of Queen Alisanne, who, as it happens, was the one who counseled her husband, King Jaehaerys, that the Lord's right of first night should be abolished by reminding him that the husbands of women victimized by the right of first night were men just as he himself was. 
Closer to home, after a day spent in the company of the eight recruits, none of whom had any experience or particular talent at arms, Egg would become very concerned for their welfare and suggest using his boot. And by boot, he clearly meant that there was something hidden in his boot that would reveal his identity, that he'd like to use it now to save these peasants from certain death, prefiguring the overarching concern for small folk which would one day characterize his reign. In the present, as much as Dunk recognizes the futility of what Sir Eustace has planned and pities the men, he quite realistically doesn't see it as much different from any other petty war in which lesser men would die because of the squabbles of two or more men of better birth. And so it's a no to the boot, but not an unkind one. And that night, Dunk has a dream that reveals that he's just as anxious about the situation as his squire is. In the dream, he's struggling to dig a hole in which to bury his old stot chestnut who had died on the crossing to Dorne. In the dream, it seems like a point of honor for him to bury the old horse who had given everything he had to his master, and Egg is helping him dig. But the white sands don't lend themselves to holes, and the sides continually slide in, hampering his progress. He's crying and is confronted by Sir Arlen, Prince Baylor, and Prince Valor, all of whom are dead, all wondering why he's crying for a horse when he never wept for them. And then the three become Sir Benis, surrounded by their peasant levy, who are all mortally wounded. Benis mocks him, telling him everyone is dead, and he'd better hurry and dig eleven holes, eight for the levy, one for Benis, one for Eustace, and the last one for Egg. As Dunk shouts, Egg, run, we have to run, the sides of the grave collapse, and the two of them fall to the bottom of the hole, and first Egg, then Dunk, are swallowed up by the sands. So there's a potent look at Tunk's anxiety, and clearly something is telling him to get out of Standfast, but his honor, at the same time, is telling him he should stay, no matter how futile it seems. Come morning, the dream stays with him, even when he and Benis start trying to teach the recruits to form a shield wall with their shields made of woven sticks. After a single disastrous attempt, he calls it off and returns to the tower where Sir Eustace meets him. They will not serve, Dunk tells him, thinking, a sworn sword owes his liege service and obedience, but this is madness. Eustace tries to convince him that a fortnight of training will help and speaks of these men's fathers and brothers who came when he went off to the red grass field. When pressed, though, he has to admit that only three of them came back, one of whom was the unlucky Dake who ended up at the bottom of Lady Weber's moat. Along with Dunk, we can clearly see the futility of this endeavor and the tragedy of peasants who are used as pawns in their lord's war games. Dunk points out that they don't have a fortnight to train and insists there must be another way. To which Sir Eustace says, I will have no justice from Lord Rowan, nor this king. It comes to me that in days gone by, when the green kings ruled, you could pay a man a blood price if you had slain one of his animals or peasants. The problem with that, however, is his own vow to never enter Coldmoat. He tells Dunk the history of Coldmoat and House Osgree, and of his attempt to wed his son to Rohan Weber, and of his reaction years later when that same lady brought one of his peasants to justice. When Sir Lucas informed me of what had been done to my poor Dake, I swore a holy vow that I would never set foot inside that castle again, unless to take possession. So you see, I cannot go there, Sir Duncan, not to pay the blood price, or for any other reason, I cannot. 
But what Sir Eustace cannot do, Sir Duncan will. And so, instead of deploying Egg's boot, Dunk will deploy himself as the representative of Stanfast in an attempt to parley with the Red Widow and find a peaceful solution. Accordingly, he takes his second bath in as many days, and his third in a matter of months, and makes ready. He has an interesting conversation with his squire about sorcery, and Egg tells him that his own sister once gave him a love potion, but he dumped it out because he thinks girls are gross, more or less, and when he grows up, he wants to be a knight of the king's guard. And this little story is really touching, with Egg's aching similarity to young Bran Stark and his obvious complete lack of expectations of getting anywhere nearer to the throne than as a knight guarding one of his relatives. It's also a sly nod to Dunk's own future, especially since Sir Eustace will, the very next morning, gift Dunk with a heavy wool cloak of Osgrey White to wear when representing Stanfast. In spite of the boy's insistence that a knight is more impressive with a squire, Dunk decrees that Egg will not accompany him to the parley, but a word to Sir Eustace while Dunk was sleeping changed that, and in due course the next day, Dunk and Egg set out for Coldmoat, with Sir Eustace accompanying them to the edge of Osgrey Land. As they ride, Sir Eustace talks to Dunk about his sons and reveals that his youngest son, Adam, was squire to his elder son, Harold. When Harold was wounded at the red grass field, Adam stood over him to protect him, but the tide of battle swept over them. There's a strong parallel here to Edric Dane standing over Lord Beric Dondarrion the first time he was killed at the Battle of the Mummers Ford by Sir Gregor Clegane. Sir Eustace tells Dunk, a riverman with six acorns on his shield was responsible for Adam's death. And it's really a pity Egg wasn't listening at this moment, because Egg would likely have recognized the arms of House Smallwood and may have recalled that they fought on his grandfather's side. But Dunk doesn't have his squire's encyclopedic knowledge of sigils, and so the talk turned to Sir Arlen and whether he had fought in the battle. And if so, what side he had fought on? Was he for the red dragon or the black? Now, Dunk fully understood the peril in this question, and so he answered carefully, deflecting by giving the name of the lord Sir Arlen had fought for. He fought beneath Lord Hayford's banner, my lord. And Sir Eustace replied by identifying Lord Hayford's arms, green fretty over gold, a green pale wavy, and noting that Lord Hayford was a loyalist, as well as King Darren's hand, named just before the battle. Dunk told them that Hayford was cut down by, quote, a lord with three castles on his shield, incidentally the same lord that slew Arlen's squire, Roger of Pennytree. As a point of interest, the lord of the three castles is Gorman Peak, who bent the knee and was pardoned, just as Sir Eustace was, but at the loss of two of his house's famous castles. Many good men fell there, Sir Eustace says, and sadly notes that the grass of the red grass field was not red before that day of slaughter, but there was beauty there as well, he says. A great battle is a terrible thing, but in the midst of blood and carnage, there is sometimes also beauty, beauty that could break your heart. I'll never forget the way the sun looked when it set upon the red grass field. Ten thousand men had died, and the air was thick with moans and lamentations, but above us the sky turned gold and red and orange so beautiful it made me weep to know that my sons would never see it. 
And Sir Eustace goes on to give an oddly skewed depiction of the battle itself, including what sounds like a lament for Damon Blackfire, how the battle was over when he died, and noting, not for the last time, how close things really were that day. If only Damon had cut down Gawain Corbray, quote, the day would have belonged to the Black Dragons then, with the hand slain and the road to King's Landing open before them. Damon might have been sitting on the Iron Throne by the time Prince Baylor could come up with his storm lords and his Dornishmen. As if this wasn't waxing, just a little too poetic on behalf of Damon Blackfire, he continues, The singers can go on about their hammer and their anvil, sir, but it was the kinslayer who turned the tide with a white arrow and a black spell. He rules us now as well, make no mistake. King Ares is his creature. It would not surprise me to learn that Bloodraven had ensorcelled his grace to bend him to his will. Small wonder we are cursed. So, wow, that is a more than a little bit treasonous declaration. Though it's noted that Egg wasn't listening, even Dunk is now feeling very nervous about this conversation. Not, it turns out, because he harbors suspicions of Eustace being a Blackfire supporter, but because he's terrified of Lord Bloodraven. He had a thought earlier about the time he saw Bloodraven in King's Landing with his own eyes and the sorcerer had looked at him and, in spite of his missing eye, it says... It seemed to Dunk that both eyes had looked right through his skin down to his very soul. And we see a number of times throughout this story where Dunk thinks quite nervously about Bloodraven's thousand eyes and one. After changing the conversation to a lengthy moan about the lost lands and past glories of House Osgrey, Sir Eustace decides it's time for him to turn back. Duncan Egg's conversation then turns to how Dunk should try to win the Red Widow to his side. With gallant compliments, Egg suggests, so Dunk doesn't seem to have a lot of confidence in his ability to deliver compliments of any sort. Plus, he's of the opinion that the Red Widow might be old and warty, seeing as how she's outlived four husbands. And so, several hours and a lot of sun later, it's with a sense of apprehension that Dunk approaches Coldmo at last, worried for Egg and for the reception they'll receive. As they approached the drawbridge over the moat, from which the castle took its name, Egg pointed out that the principal ditch diverting water from the stream was feeding, of all things, the moat. And so it was with a flush of anger at this apparent waste of water that Dunk rides in to the spider's web. Entering cold moat, there's the usual exchange where Egg's mouth nearly gets him in trouble, but he's saved by a clout in the air from Sir Duncan and left at the gate. Dunk rides on to confront Sir Lucas Inchfield. Sir Lucas is the castellan of Coldmo and was commanded by the late Lord Wyman to protect Rohan from unworthy suitors, which Sir Lucas has chosen to interpret as everyone having designs on marrying the woman himself, in spite of the fact that she had rejected him some years back when her father tried to marry them. He's described as being very tall and straight, around six foot seven, a good four inches shorter than Dunk who observes him as an older man, 40 at least, perhaps as old as 50, sinewy rather than muscular, with a remarkably ugly face. His lips were thick, his teeth a yellow tangle, his nose broad and fleshy, his eyes protruding. Sir Lucas makes it immediately plain that he has no use for Dunk or for Sir Eustace, and Dunk senses an anger in him. We'll come to realize that the anger is simmering because Lady Rohan continues to reject him, in spite of the fact that, according to the terms of her father's will, 
she has a matter of days left to choose a suitable husband, or she'll lose her castle and lands to her cousin, Sir Wendell. Known as the Longage because of his height, it's been a long time since Sir Lucas encountered someone taller than him, and he clearly sees Dunk as a threat. He tries to dismiss him, and then when Dunk insists on seeing Lady Weber, tries to trick him into thinking the lady's simple-minded good sister is the woman he's come to see. Now, this charade lasts only as long as it takes the real Lady Rohan, who had been practicing archery nearby, to become aware of the situation and take things in hand. She is described as being very young and pretty, with strawberry blonde hair and freckles. She's a full two feet shorter than Dunk, who's predictably awkward in their first exchange, and after she greets him, she sends him and his squire to wait in her audience chamber with Septon Sefton, another relative from a former marriage who resides at Colpo. As they wait for her to join them, they're entertained by Septon Sefton, who is remarkably talkative and fills them in on a lot of backstory. He recognizes Dunk as being from King's Landing and talks to him about the spring sickness and the changes it wrought to the city. Then he turns to the drought, ironborn raiding, and the looming crisis between Blackwood and Bracken in the Riverlands. He gets into uncomfortable territory by delivering his opinions of King Ares and Queen Eleanor, Bloodraven, Prince Rago, and Prince Makar. He concludes Ares is weak, his wife Eleanor is still a maid, Rhaegel is meek and mad, and Makar is sulking at Summerhall, while Bloodraven is the true ruler of the Seven Kingdoms, aided by a council of his own favorites, a Grand Maester, as steeped in sorcery as he is, and his raven's teeth, who are never far away in the Red Keep. Dunk is thinking of Bloodraven's thousand and one eyes again, and hoping he doesn't have the same number of ears, because, quote, some of what Septon Sefton was saying sounded treasonous. Egg, he notices, is trying as hard as he can to stay silent. So Dunk changes the subject, asking about Lady Halicent, and gets the full rundown on Lady Rohan's past husbands, her relatives, the terms of her father's will, and her current suitors. When Septon Sefton mentions Sir Gerald Lannister, the lady herself enters the room and quickly diverts that topic as well. And now the talk turns to Sir Duncan himself and his background, along with the observation that he's, quote, strong enough to annoy Sir Lucas. Lady Rohan shares a few details about herself as well, concluding, I'm sorry that your Sir Arlen died, and sorrier still that you took service with Sir Eustace. All old men are not the same, Sir Duncan. You'd do well to go home to Pennytree. And that's a highly perceptive observation, since, of course, Dunk's longing to replace Sir Arlen, and perhaps a father he never knew, is evident by the fact that the old man's voice has stayed with him in the many months since his death. And when she fails to convince Dunk to leave Stanfast and swear his sword to her, the talk turns to Dunk's reason for being there. They debate Sir Benis's actions and punishment, and the reparation being offered by Sir Eustace. She has no intention of accepting the silver being offered as a blood price, saying, No one rides onto my lands, does harm to one of mine, and escapes to laugh about it. And this reference to laughter and the obvious theme of pride that's driving this dispute has a ring of the old dispute between her father and Sir Eustace, which was caused by Lord Wyman's apparent laughter over the suggestion that Rohan marry Adam Osgrey. 
There's a certain irony and tragedy that both of these characters are so caught up in what Dunk will eventually call a pissing contest. When Dunk challenges her with the facts of Dake, whom she apparently rode on to Standfast Land and seized before drowning him in a sack in her moat, she replies by citing her right to pit and gallows. Now, Egg challenges that, stating it applies to her own lands, and she reminds them that Sir Eustace, as a landed knight, has no such power, and that she had appealed to him twice with no answer before riding into Stanfast territory to take Dake, who, incidentally, no one is claiming is innocent. As a minor aside, the right of pit and gallows is a right commonly granted to lords under feudal law, allowing them to inflict capital punishment. The pit may refer to a drowning pit or a murder hole into which a criminal was thrown and drowned. This was often reserved for women, as drowning was thought to be less violent than the more traditional execution by hanging from a gallows. But there are some recorded cases of male thieves being drowned instead of hanged. This right was not granted to lesser lords and landed knights, who typically would have to appeal to their liege lord in order to obtain or deliver justice. The fact that Lady Rohan has this right, and Sir Eustace does not, illustrates the gap in their places within the feudal power structure of Westeros. While Egg points out that Pitt and Gallows doesn't give her the right to ride on to Standfast lands and exact justice, the fact that Dake committed his crimes on Coldmoat land, and Sir Eustace refused to turn him over, would probably lead to the liege lord, Lord Rowan in this case, being sympathetic to her case. In the present case, however, it's much more clear. Sir Bennis, says Lady Rohan, rode onto her lands and broke the king's peace. No one is denying that either, and her expected punishment is to slit his nose as a punishment that's fit for his crime. If he isn't turned over to her justice, she will come for him, and at that point she won't guarantee his life. Dunk, rather uncomfortably, changes the subject to the dam. In short, he pleads that the dam is the cause of all the problems. Sir Eustace wants her to remove it and return his water to him. And obviously, the importance of water to this story cannot be overstated. In real life, water-related conflicts are recognized as a major source of dispute throughout human history, up to and including the present. Use of water as a boundary, controlling the availability of scarce water, or exerting control over the source of water, are all things that can be leveraged for military, political, or economic gain. And all of these things are happening at Coldmoat, since the Checky water does form a part of the boundary with Standfast, and as Lady Rohan illustrates, that she owns the source of the water. The question of use would be tricky enough in that case, if her maester didn't then produce a parchment bearing a royal seal. Although Dunk cannot read, he manages to have Egg take a look. It will turn out the paper was a grant of rights to Lord Wyman Weber from King Daron. Egg will describe it to Dunk later like this. For his leal service in the late rebellion, Lord Wyman and his descendants were granted all rights to the Checky water from where it rises in the Horseshoe Hills to the shores of Leafy Lake. It also said that Lord Wyman and his descendants should have the right to take red deer and boar and rabbits in Watts Wood whenever it pleased them and to cut twenty trees from the wood each year. Only for a time, though, if Sir Eustace were to die without a male heir to his body, Stanfast will revert to the crown, and Lord Weber's privileges would end. And when Dunk tries to use pity to convince Rohan, in spite of this unexpected development, 
He gets the most disturbing piece of news yet, though in truth, he probably should have guessed at this point after his conversation with Sir Eustace earlier in the day about the red grass field. Sir Eustace, Lady Rohan asserts, is lucky to still have his head. A confused dunk asks what she means. She means, said Maester Carrick, that Sir Eustace Osgrey is a rebel and a traitor. And the big reveal is made all the more powerful by Lady Rohan's further explanation. Sir Eustace chose the black dragon over the red in the hope that a blackfire king might restore the lands and castles that the Osgreys had lost under the Targaryens. Chiefly, he wanted Coldmo. His sons paid for his treason with their life's blood. When he brought their bones home and delivered his daughter to the king's men for a hostage, his wife threw herself from the top of Stanfast Tower. And Dunk is utterly dismayed, thinking, You swore your sword to a traitor, Lunk. You ate a traitor's bread and slept beneath a rebel's roof. But that doesn't stop him trying to get some concession on the water. It's a desperate situation, and he knows Stanfast won't survive without the means to irrigate their crops and water their meager livestock. He makes a last-ditch effort to appeal to Rohan's past and asks her to consider it for Adam, her former friend. And unfortunately, that backfired rather spectacularly, and Rohan throws him out of Coldmo in a rage, telling him she'll come for Sir Bennis with fire and sword on the next day if he isn't delivered to her. Septon Sefton explained her rage as he escorted Dunk to the gate. She loved the boy and him her. It was Adam she wept for after the red grass field, not the husband she hardly knew. She blamed Sir Eustace for his death, and rightly so. The boy was twelve. On the ride back to Stanfast, Duncan Egg discussed the king's grant, Makar's sulking, bastardy, rebellions, and pardons for treason. It's many deep thoughts for a ten-year-old, but Egg is up to the task. Asked whether he would have pardoned Sir Eustace, he gives us a page's eye view into the small council. They used to fight about it. Uncle Baylor said that clemency was best when dealing with an honorable foe. If a defeated man believes he'll be pardoned, he may lay down his sword and bend the knee. Elsewise, he'll fight on to the death and slay more loyal men and innocents. But Lord Bloodraven said that when you pardon rebels, you only plant the seeds of the next rebellion. So as interesting as it is to hear Prince Baylor voicing the same philosophy as Tywin Lannister, he's also following in the footsteps of his own ancestors, such as Aegon I after the conquest and Jaehaerys I following the fall of Maegor. But given what would happen in the years to come with the Blackfires, the obvious conclusion is that Bloodraven may have had a point. And George probably wants us to have this debate. It's clearly an age-old one that has troubled kings and their counselors for generations, and it may be that there is no correct answer, that the answers must depend on the individual situation. The rules of making warfare may be relatively immutable, but the rules of making peace must change with the times and the participants. For instance, we can imagine that a day would come when even Prince Baylor might wish that Gorman Peak and his heirs had been executed rather than pardoned following the Red Grass Field. For his part, Egg is trying to figure out why Sir Eustace rose against King Daron. He tells Dunk of his grandfather, He was a good king. Everybody says so. He brought Dorne into the realm and made the Dornishmen our friends. Dunk thinks about the castle with its checky lion, but he tells Egg, 
You'll have to ask Sir Eustace for the answer. When they arrive back at Stanfast, Dunk goes right to Eustace's solar. He has questions of his own, and he knows now that he's been played for a fool. Sir Eustace let him believe that the water was rightfully Stanfast's, and that his sons had died fighting for the king, the Red Dragon. By way of explanation, Sir Eustace tells Dunk that in his opinion, Damon Blackfire was the rightful king. He was the king who bore the sword. Stuck in the past, he provides a long list of things that might have tipped the scales in Damon's favor. If Damon had ridden over Gawain Corbray, if Fireball had not been slain on the eve of battle, if Hightower and Tarbeck and Oakheart and Butterwell had lent us their full strength instead of trying to keep one foot in each camp, if Manfred Lotston had proved true instead of treacherous, if storms had not delayed Lord Bracken sailing with the Mirish crossbowmen, if Quickfinger had not been caught with the stolen dragon's eggs, so many ifs, sir, had any one come out differently. It could all have turned the other way. Then we would be called the Loyalists, and the Red Dragons would be remembered as men who fought to keep the usurper dare on the Falseborn upon his stolen throne and failed. And when Dunk mentions Eustace's pardon, we see the source of his bitterness. Daron pardoned him, but he took away his pride, his lands, his daughter. His wife killed herself, and even the daughter later died in King's Landing during the spring sickness. Sir Eustace lost his entire family as a result of joining the rebellion, and much more besides, and a man who's lost so much often must have someone to blame. And so Daron and his counselors took the blame. As Eustace tells Dunk, Daron's mercy made me smaller. Dunk realizes that in Eustace's mind, the black dragon never died, this man is stuck in a cascading series of past glories that ended on the red grass field, and from which, for him, there seems to have been no return. And then Egg enters the room, and he asks his own question, why? Sir Eustace says it wasn't just for the castle, and that Egg wouldn't understand. But when pressed, he offers a comparison of Daron and Daemon, one a warrior and one not. Daron's marriage alliances with Dorne and having a court full of maesters and septons and singers and women, failing somehow to live up to his own namesake, Daron I, and then naming his son Baylor after that weakest of kings, Baylor the Blessed, as if that somehow invalidated all of the worth and nobility that there was in Baylor Breakspear. He concludes, Why, lad? You ask me why? Because Damon was the better man. The old king saw it too. He gave the sword to Damon Blackfire, the sword of Aegon the Conqueror, the blade that every Targaryen king had wielded since the conquest. He put that sword in Damon's hand the day he knighted him, a boy of twelve. This idea of a sword or other royal regalia being synonymous with the right to rule is an ancient one. And in our world, we have only to look as far as King Arthur and Excalibur for a perfect example. Egg, though, answers with logic. He says his father told him that it was because Damon was a swordsman and Dara never was. Why give a horse to a man who cannot ride? The sword was not the kingdom. Sir Eustace replies angrily that Egg's father is a fool, and now he's getting into very dangerous territory. The mounting argument between the two leads Dunk to interrupt to say that they'll be leaving in the morning. Sir Eustace is angry, though it's no more than he expected, as he'd admitted just moments previously. 
Dunk and Egg retire to the cellar to spend their final night at Stanfast. Dunk is restless, and when he sleeps at last, it's only to dream of Rohan Weber. And then they're awoken by shouts and the sight of Watts Wood burning to the west. Convinced that the fire was the Red Widow's doing, Sir Eustace and Bennis begin to plan their revenge. Burner Fields, Burner Mill, kill the miller! But in the end, they decide they must barricade themselves inside the towers. They don't have the power to face her in the open and prevail. Dunk and Egg are planning their departure and discuss heading for Fair Isle. But Dunk knows that in the face of determined assault, Stanfast can't hold out against Lady Weber and that ultimately the eight villagers will all be killed. To save them, innocence in this squabble between rivals, he sends them home. In spite of Bennis and Sir Eustace's protests, he runs them off, really, in a scene that's reminiscent of the one at the dam when he chased off the cold moat laborers to save them from Bennis. Then he offers to give Sir Eustace one more day of service and counsels him to ride out to meet Lady Rohan at the border between their lands. And this appeals to Sir Eustace with his fondness for the glories of the days gone by when the Osgrees guarded the border between the Reach and the West, and he calls for his armor. Dunk does the same and also asks for one thing more from his squire. To try to keep the situation in hand, they decide to leave Bennis behind, and so once again it's the trio of Dunk, Egg, and Sir Eustace riding out towards Coldmoat, their trip taking them straight through Watts Wood. The scene there was one of devastation, a burned landscape with the charred carcasses of animals and nothing living. Sir Eustace, as usual, is stuck in the past, and he muses on another of the turns of fate that led to the diminishment of his house, the Field of Fire. The field of fire must have looked like this. It was there our woes began two hundred years ago. The last of the green kings perished on that field, with the finest flowers of the reach around him. My father said the dragon fire burned so hot that their swords melted in their hands. Afterward, the blades were gathered up and went to make the iron throne. Highgarden passed from kings to stewards, and the Osgreys dwindled and diminished until the marshals of the North March were no more than landed knights bound in fealty to the Rowans. And proving that he could no more return from the past than he could change it, as they approach the stream marking the border between the two lands, Sir Eustace asks Dunk to recall the story of the little lion. When he slew Lancel Lannister, the Westerman turned back. Without the king, there was no war. Do you understand what I'm saying? Dunk does understand, but he doesn't seem to be very interested in killing Lady Rohan, he knows that he has to find another way. The confrontation then occurs at the stream's edge. There three facing Lady Rohan, Septon Sefton, her maester, Sir Lucas, and 32 fighting men. Sir Eustace gets things off to a great start by accusing Rohan of setting the fire, which she hotly denies, pointing to the drought and the dangers of fire to the entire region. He doubles down and accuses her of sorcery as well and refuses to give up Sir Benis. And then he says, Come no farther. 
This side of the stream is mine, and you are not wanted here. You shall have no hospitality from me, no bread and salt, not even shade and water. You come as an intruder. I forbid you to set foot on Osgri land. And so in that small speech, Eustace was able to replicate the words of Sir Wilbert Osgri, the little lion, to King Lancel Lannister. Come no further. You are not wanted here. I forbid you to set foot upon the reach. Given his words to Dunk just previously, it seems like the old knight is really trying to recreate something from the past, perhaps seeing his own death ahead of him and wanting to face it with something like the glory days gone by that he yearns for when shut up in his tower. And things seem to be going very poorly indeed when Dunk rides into the stream to parley with Rohan and tell her exactly how he'll stop her far superior force of men from killing him and his companions and crossing the stream. In spite of her apologies for striking him and her insistence that she was not responsible for the fire, she insists that she will not take down the dam and that she must have Bennis. And if she has to cross the stream to get him, she will. And if that means killing Eustace and Dunk and his young squire, well, that would be a mistake, Dunk explains. In Flea Bottom, I was always bigger and stronger than the other boys. So I used to beat them bloody and steal from them. The old man taught me not to do that. It was wrong, he said. And besides, sometimes little boys have great big brothers. And he hands her a signet ring, retrieved from Egg's boot earlier that day. The ring bears the seal of Makar Targaryen, and Dunk says plainly that should anything happen to him, Egg will ride to Summerhall and tell his father the entire story. He gambles that she wouldn't risk killing him to stop that happening, saying... No matter how deep you dug the graves, the tail would out, and then, well, might be a spotted spider's bite can kill a lion, but a dragon is a different sort of beast. And she makes it plain that she would rather be the dragon's friend, but she remains in a very difficult position. Bennis has made her look foolish, and so she must deal with him or risk appearing weak. And while Dunk calls this just another pissing contest between rival landowners to show who's strongest, she clarifies. Those pissing contests are how lords judge one another's strength, and woe to any man who shows his weakness. A woman must needs piss twice as hard if she hopes to rule, and if that woman should happen to be small. Lord Stackhouse covets my horseshoe hills, Sir Clifford Conklin has an old claim to Leafy Lake. Those dismal Durwells live by stealing cattle. And beneath mine own roof I have the long inch. Every day I wake wondering if this might be the day he marries me by force. He wants to, I know. He holds back for fear of my wrath, just as Conklin and Stackhouse and the Durwells tread carefully where the Red Widow is concerned. If any of them thought for a moment that I had turned weak and soft... So Dunk tries to take the blame for Bennis's actions on himself and cuts his own cheek open in reparation for the man cut at the dam. But it's not enough. Now that Sir Eustace has leveled this accusation of the fire against her, she must also have an apology. Or a trial. These lords and their pissing contests just keep raising the stakes. And so another trial it is for Dunk. Only this time it will be single combat. Dunk is standing as champion of the accuser rather than as the accused himself, and the stream will be their battlefield. Both Eustace and Rohan refuse Septon Sefton's entreaties that they take the matter to Golden Grove, 
Sir Lucas Inchfield is in a rage, insisting you will marry me when this mummer's farce is done, as your lord father wished. My lord father never knew you as I do, is Rohan's reply. A curious remark for a lady to make to a man who's about to defend her honor, and we have to wonder about her motivations here. The fact that she's made careful note of Dunk's size, and who she really wanted to win this duel. Then Dunk returns the ring to Egg, instructing him to find a loyal friend of his father's to return him to Summerhall should he die. I'd sooner you didn't die, is Egg's reply. As Dunk dons his helm and mounts thunder, he notices the sky is dark with clouds. An omen, he thinks. But is it his omen or mine? Dunk was no good with omens. Oak and iron, guard me well, or else I'm dead and doomed to hell. Omen or not, the two men met in the middle of the stream. Sir Lucas was mounted on a courser, smaller than Dunk's warhorse, and armed with a two-handed pole-axe, a vicious weapon, but one that meant he wouldn't be able to carry a shield. Dunk had his oak shield, painted with the arms devised by Tansel and Sir Arlen's sword. Knowing that not having a shield would be a weakness, Dunk resolved to make the most of it and kept a careful eye on Sir Lucas's armor for gaps that could be exploited. But a thrust a moment too late on horseback can unbalance even the best horseman, and an awkward lurch by Dunk led to Sir Lucas's axe blow sliding off his shield and catching both his helm and Thunder's neck. Before Dunk knew it, both horses and men were rolling in the stream, Dunk's ankle momentarily caught in the stirrup, and then, miraculously free, his shield still on his arm, but his sword gone missing. And so then, just as we saw in the hedge night, Dunk of King's Landing took over for a moment. Egg is shouting, get him, get him, like we heard him do at Ashford. And when the two men regained their footing, Dunk bowled Sir Lucas down into the stream using his superior size to hold the older man beneath the water while he found the dagger at his belt and took advantage of the gap under Lucas's arm that he had noted earlier. This fight is actually strongly reminiscent of another fight in the stream that we see in the main series. In A Storm of Swords, Dunk's descendant, Brienne of Tarth, and Lady Rohan's descendant, Jamie Lannister, will duel in a stream in the Riverlands. It is not a duel to the death like this one. Jamie's shackled and Brienne is much too honorable to kill a man whose hands are bound and who's her prisoner besides. But the sequence, her use of her size to gain the advantage, holding his head beneath the water, demanding a yield until Jamie points out that she wouldn't kill him, is very similar. And it's actually the second time we've seen a comparison between one of Brienne's fights and one of Dunk's, recalling the similarities to Brienne versus Loris and Dunk versus Arian that we made note of in the last episode. As it happened, Brienne didn't drown Jamie, and they were both captured by the brave companions moments later. Dunk didn't drown Sir Lucas in the end either, because his dagger seems to have done the work first, but he himself was seriously wounded, and when he woke at Colmo, Maester Carrick would tell him just how badly A broken ankle, a sprained knee, a broken collarbone, bruising on your upper torso, it's largely green and yellow, and your right arm is a purply black. And of course, there was the self-inflicted cut to his face, which would leave a lasting scar, and to top it all off, he had drowned as well, though fortunately for him, the maester was ironborn and had been able to revive him. The maester also tells Dunk how it was Egg who pulled him from the stream, 
and how Lady Rohan and Sir Eustace had reconciled over their shared grief for Adam, and Sir Eustace remembered his long friendship with her father, and how they had been wed that very morning, and that Sir Eustace Osgrey was now Lord of Colmo. This was all a bit too much for Dunk, who submitted to whatever healing draft had been given to him and fell back to sleep, not before he heard a strange sound. Rain. The black clouds had indeed been a sign of rain, of water, and salvation for the countryside. So, within a matter of days, Dunk would be on his way, not, as Septon Sefton feared, to hunt down Bennis of the Brown Shield, who had robbed Sir Eustace and abandoned Stanfast, even as Dunk faced down Lady Rohan on his behalf and dueled Sir Lucas, but for the hedges, leaving open the possibility that one day in future he'll come across Bennis again and make sure the debt is paid. Barely healed and wearing the white cloak from now Lord Eustace again, he took his leave of Lady Rohan in her stable. He's clearly not happy with her decision to wed Eustace, even in spite of knowing very well the deadline that she had faced. When Rohan offers him a splendid bay mare called Flame as amends, he refuses, saying, She's too good a horse for me. Rohan understands the double meaning and protests that she had to marry to keep Sir Wendell from taking her castle. She insists that he take the horse to remember her by but he refuses, asking for something else instead. He took the kiss and the braid and rode away, not looking back, and we're left to wonder how she explained her haircut to her new husband. As Dunk and Egg begin the next leg of their journey, they find themselves back at the crossroads. Dunk still needs to ask his squire for directions, and when pointing north, Egg observes that the wall is north. Dunk had expressed a desire to see the wall to Septon Sefton, and we know now that this desire comes from his hope that there's a tall man that looks like him serving in the Night's Watch. It's a long way to go, though, but having suggested it, Egg seems determined to see it through. We'll have to wait and see, but it's possible Aegon Targaryen might be the first member of his house to visit the wall since good Queen Alysanne over six generations ago. And so ends the second tale of Duncan Egg. It's a story full of history and sadness, unexpected peril and passion. The relationship between the knight and his squire is full of complexities and humor as they continue to learn from one another. Once again, Dunk almost finds love, but loses the girl in the end. We can look forward to one more story about their adventures together. And speaking of looking forward... We have one more segment today in which I'll look ahead at a number of things that are hinted at in this story, including more on Lady Rohan Weber. Dunk grabbed her braid and pulled her face to his. It was awkward with the crutch and the difference in their heights. He almost fell before he got his lips on hers. He kissed her hard. One of her hands went around his neck and one around his back. He learned more about kissing in a moment than he had ever known from watching. But when they finally broke apart, he drew his dagger. I know what I want to remember you by, milady. The introduction of Rohan Weber and her final exchange with Dunk left a lot of fans with questions. What happened to the Red Widow after Dunk and Egg left Coltmo? In light of their obvious spark of romance, would she ever meet up with Dunk again? 
Time passed, and it seemed like fans would have to wait for the Dunkin' Egg stories to run their course before we could know these answers. But the world of Ice and Fire answered at least part of the first question in 2014, although, typical George, it raised a whole new set of questions. We ended the Sworn Sword knowing that Lady Rohan married Sir Eustace Osgrey in 211 AC to prevent Coldmoat passing to her cousin, Wendell Webber, but Sir Eustace was an old man, and it was primarily a marriage of convenience. Septon Sefton mentioned another suitor in the story. Were I given to wagering, I should place my gold on Gerald Lannister. He has yet to put in an appearance, but they say he is golden-haired and quick of wit, and more than six feet tall. Rohan herself was quick to point out that the ambitious Gerald had much more influence at Casterly Rock as an advisor to his brother Tybalt than he could ever hope to have as a minor lordling in the Reach, but she did acknowledge that she was, quote, much taken with his letters. And yet the Westerlands history released in 2014 mentioned Gerald Lannister's beloved second wife, Rohan, and the Lannister family tree in the World Book confirmed that it was indeed Rohan Weber who married Gerald, now Lord of Casterly Rock himself, since his brother's and young niece's untimely deaths. But these same histories also revealed that after giving Lord Gerald four sons, twins Tywald and Tyon, followed by Tytos and Jason, Lady Rohan vanished without a trace under, quote, mysterious circumstances. This disappearance occurred shortly after Jason's birth, sometime around 230 AC, given Rohan's conviction that Gerald wouldn't leave Casterly Rock for the backwater of Coldmoat, and based on what we know of the Lannister family, Tylan's death occurring in 212, and Tywald and Tyon seeming to have been born around 217 or 219, it's likely that Gerald and Rohan were married after he himself had succeeded to the lordship, say within five or so years after the events of the Sworn Sword. So, just like that, the meta-mystery of Rohan's fate was replaced with another, larger, in-story mystery. As usual, the fandom has come up with a host of theories, which can basically be divided into three categories and one outlier— the first grouping I'll call the petite woman theories and are based on Rohan's noticeably short stature. The second grouping I'll call the redhead theories and hinge upon her famous red braid. The third grouping are name theories, and there are only two of those, which are both based on the fact that Damon Blackfire's wife was Rohan of Tyrosh. And finally, the outlier is the idea that Rohan ran off with Dunk and went into hiding, having a baby that would become Brienne's ancestor. In a nutshell, after doing a lot of reading, I can't really say I favor any of these ideas. Most fail the textual evidence test, and I couldn't really say any of them meet the making story sense criteria that we usually apply either. But normally a mystery in A Song of Ice and Fire yields at least one idea that does make sense. I think the reason none of these theories feel like they fit in is in large part because we don't have any real clues pertinent to Rohan herself, other than her name and her appearance, all of which simply lead us down too many blind alleys. But taking a look at what was happening in the Lannister family, both before and after her disappearance, might actually provide us with some clues. So let's start with Tybalt Lannister. Tybalt had succeeded his father, Lord Daemon, as Lord of the Rock after the Grey Lion died in the Spring Sickness in 210 AC. Incidentally, both Tybalt and Daemon were mentioned at the Ashford Tourney in the Hedge Knight, although Gerald was not. 
As I said, in 212, the year after he was mentioned in the Sworn Sword, Gerald found himself acting as a regent and guardian for his three-year-old niece, Sorel, after Tybalt died under mysterious circumstances. Not a year later, the young girl was dead, also under mysterious circumstances. Naturally, suspicion fell upon the man who stood to gain the most from these two unfortunate deaths, the new Lord of the Rock, Gerald. The world of ice and fire has this to say about Gerald's ascension. A genial man, known to be exceedingly clever, Gerald had served as regent for his young niece, but the suddenness of her death at such a tender age set tongues to wagging, and it was whispered widely in the West that both Lady Sorel and Tybalt had died at his hands. No man now living can say with certainty whether there was any truth to these whispers, for Gerald Lannister soon proved himself to be an exceptionally shrewd, able, and fair-minded lord, greatly increasing the wealth of House Lannister, the power of Casterly Rock, and the trade at Lannisport. He ruled the Westerlands for 31 years, earning the sobriquet Gerald the Golden, yet the tragedies that befell House Lannister in the years that followed were proof enough for Lord Gerald's enemies. Regarding Sorel's death, the extended Westerlands history at georgerrrmartin.com goes a step further. It was whispered widely in the West that Lady Sorel had been murdered by her uncle. The most common tale claimed that he had done the deed himself, smothering her with a pillow as she slept. And that comment is particularly interesting in light of something Gerald's grandson, Tywin, would say to Tyrion regarding the murder of the child Rhaenys Targaryen during the sack of King's Landing. If Lorch had half the wits the gods gave a turnip, he would have calmed her with a few sweet words and used a soft silk pillow. So, perhaps the silk pillow was straight out of the Lannister playbook. Now, both the World of Ice and Fire and the Extended History go on to tell in great detail how the wages of the Kinslayer were visited upon Lord Gerald, starting with the mysterious disappearance of his second wife and followed by the unmysterious deaths of his two elder sons. And this is where it gets interesting. The twins, Tywald and Tyon, are the point of intersection of House Lannister with House Rain that would ultimately lead to Gerald's grandson Tywin's mass execution of the Rains and their kin, the Tarbecks. Gerald's heir, Tywald, was betrothed to Lady Ellen Rain, daughter of Lord Robert Rain of Castamere. However, during the Peak Rebellion of 233 AC, both Lord Rain and his squire, Tywald Lannister, were killed in the storming of Starpike. Young Prince Aegon Targaryen himself did Tywald the honor of knighting him as he lay dying in the arms of his twin Tyon, who was himself a squire to the prince. This also happened to be the battle where King Makar I, Aegon's father, was killed, and yet it was said that Lord Rain's heir, Roger, had to be restrained by Prince Aegon from killing captive members of the Peak family as vengeance for his father's death in battle. In other words, in spite of Roger's reputation as a great knight, the reigns hardly come off as honorable or level-headed right from the start. And immediately following word of the two deaths, Lady Ellen would rush into action, working to convince Tyon to abandon the Rowan girl he himself was betrothed to in order to marry her in his brother's place, on account of Tywald's apparent dying injunction to, quote, look after Lady Ellen. And while Lord Gerald would try to oppose this match, his objections would be overcome and Tyon married Ellen Rain in due course in a double wedding ceremony with his younger brother, Tydos, and Lady Jane Marbrand. However, in spite of a brief ascendancy at Casterly Rock, where she lavished favors on her own family and favorites, 
Within a year after their marriage, Tyon would be killed in the Fourth Blackfire Rebellion at the Battle of Wendwater Bridge. Lady Ellen was now in the unenviable position of being a childless widow and having to play second fiddle to Tydos's wife, Lady Jane. When Ellen tried to bed Tydos, who was now the heir to Casterly Rock, Lord Gerald married her off to Walderin Tarbeck, a man nearly 40 years her senior, from an old but impoverished house in the Northern Hills. Over the next three years, Lady Ellen would have three children with Lord Tarbeck. A daughter she named Rohan, followed by a daughter called Sorel, and a son named Tyon. These names, especially the daughters, seemed to be somehow directed at Lord Gerald. Maester Belden, presumably the maester at the rock around this time, called them daggers aimed at Lord Gerald's heart. The long saga of the Lannisters, the Reigns, and the Tarbecks continues on from there, but what's interesting as it relates to Rohan Weber's disappearance is Lady Allen's choice of names and the idea that they were carefully designed to cause some sort of discomfort for Lord Gerald. Now combine this with something you might have already noticed. The deaths of Gerald's brother Tybalt, his niece Sorel, and the disappearance of his wife Rohan were all described with a single word, mysterious. It was widely thought that Gerald was responsible for the two deaths, and because of this, in spite of his relative success as a ruler, his reputation as the Golden stemmed more from his accrual of wealth rather than anything to do with his personality or the popularity of his rule. So one has to wonder, could Lord Gerald have also killed his own beloved wife? In the annals of mysteriously dead wives, unfortunately, a stunningly huge percentage of them are killed by their spouses, and so we really have to consider this. We don't know for certain that Lady Rohan actually died in 230 AC, but the use of the word mysterious to describe both her disappearance and the deaths of two other family members, and the inclusion of her name and that grouping of names designed to cause distress to Lord Gerald, definitely gives one pause. And knowing what we do of Lady Ellen's personality and the hatred which she and the Lannisters apparently held for each other for many years, one could ask what her motivations were. Did she perhaps suspect something or know something and the names of her children were some sort of bizarre message to Lord Gerald? Or was she just evilly tweaking him over the rumors about his past? We can't really know for sure, but as for Gerald himself, the obvious question is, why would he have done this thing? Based on what we learned of Lady Rohan and the Sworn Sword, I don't really see her being complicit in the murders of Tybalt and Sorel. There has been fan speculation, some of it based on her reputation as a sorceress and a murderer from the past that we see in the Sworn Sword, that she somehow aided Gerald in these acts. I think this ignores what we learned of the lady in the story, that her reputation was, like so many of these things, unearned. She was neither a sorceress nor a murderer, but was simply a strong woman trying to hold her own in a male-dominated world, and as such, she had to cultivate this fearsome reputation or risk losing her position. And so, what might this woman have done if she found out her husband was responsible for those deaths? Going off how she's portrayed in the Sworn Sword, maybe she'd have threatened to leave him, or maybe she played a hand she thought she could back up and threatened to turn him over to her friend Prince Aegon, never suspecting the lengths a cornered murderer might go to. And if you think this all sounds a bit fanciful, 
Let's take a look at some of the things Lannisters in the present story are known to have done. Tywin extinguishing the Tarbecks by destroying their besieged tower and then drowning the also-besieged reigns inside their mines at Castamere, ensuring that every last member of the family was dead, down to the youngest child, to assuage the wounded pride and honor of his house. Tywin's palpable, cold-hearted relief at the death of his own weak, despised father. Tywin presiding over the virtual destruction of House Targaryen, mainly due to Aerys's repeated slights to his honor. And Tywin signing off on the destruction of Robb Stark and his army through the violation of a sacred and ancient principle of Westerosi culture. Enough about Tywin, though. How about Jamie throwing a seven-year-old child from a window to protect himself and his sister and their three bastard children? Cersei killing her husband, a king, to protect herself and those children, and then being ready to kill every dwarf in the known world because she thinks her dwarf brother killed her son and father and then having escaped would soon be returning to kill her other children. Tyrion killing his own father after years of emotional torment and the betrayal of a sham trial, and then killing Shay, whom he had once thought he loved, for her own betrayal. Simply put, the Lannisters, as we know them, are all about self-interest and protecting those interests at any cost. Some are calculating, like Cersei and Tywin, and some act in the heat of the moment, like Jaime and Tyrion. But talking to Oberyn Martell in A Storm of Swords, Tyrion thinks this about family history. It all goes back and back to our mothers and fathers and theirs before them. We are puppets dancing on the strings of those who came before us, and one day our own children will take up our strings and dance in our steads. This theme of self-interest in the Lannister family is as prevalent as the theme of Northern honor in Stark histories. George seems to write these types of things, personality traits, a distinctive look, specific behaviors, into families all the time, So, Gerald killing his wife, if she represented a threat to his status quo, would certainly not be an unbelievable, even if it would be an unexpected, twist. One more thing of note. Rohan went missing in 230 AC, and Egg was named king by the Great Council in 233, following the death of King Makar at the same siege where young Tywald Lannister lost his life. Gerald Lannister cast one of the deciding votes at the Great Council that selected Aegon as his father's successor. Gerald's eloquence, and possibly gold, are noted to have played a role as well. And while Gerald may have been repaying old friendship, or the honor Aegon had bestowed upon his son at Starpike, or even been giving thanks for some assistance rendered in the mysterious disappearance of his wife, there's also the possibility that he was buying an insurance policy that is... His support of Aegon may have been intended to ensure that Aegon would look favorably upon him, Gerald, just in case some rumor should reach King's Landing about the Lord of Casterly Rock's alleged crimes. At the end of the day, we're back to having no answer, and the likelihood of getting one still seems to rest on a future Duncan Egg story. As George might say, all will be revealed in due time, unless, of course... He chooses not to. So make what you will of this mystery. I'll leave you with one final curiosity of note. In A Dance with Dragons, there are a number of Westerosi from the Windblown, sent by the Tattered Prince to join Daenerys, including a man named Weber, who is described as short and muscular, with spiders tattooed across his head and chest and arms. 
The tattered prince says to him, Weber, you nurse claims to lands lost in Westeros. Rewind to the Sorn Sword and Rohan's cousin Wendell, who stood to inherit if she failed to marry, who is described as a short man with a goiter on his neck and a squat, bald keg of a man in mail and leather with an angry face and an ugly goiter on his neck. Wendell seems like a solid option as the ancestor to this man, Weber, who's short and muscular and tattooed with spiders, the symbol of House Weber, and whose branch of the family might nurse a longtime grudge against the diversion of their presumed birthright into the hands of the Lannisters, as likely would have happened with Rohan's holdings when she disappeared. Given Weber's proximity to Lady Rohan's great-grandson, Tyrion Lannister, this is something that could be mentioned in the main series heading forward. So there is hope. Getting back now to the end of the Sorn Sword, Duncan Egg talk about heading north to the Wall. In late 2005, George said at a signing for A Feast for Crows that he was about halfway through the third installment of their adventures and that it would involve a wedding and a tourney. Some months later at a convention in Boston, he noted that he had a lot of the story done but was struggling with adding a time gap of a year or more, which would necessitate a lot of rewriting. At the same event, he spoke at length about a storyline involving the Starks at Winterfell. In this time period, he said, There were four widows from recently dead Stark lords and a fifth lord dying from wounds taken fighting ironborn raiders. So this is the now infamous She-Wolves of Winterfell storyline, which George mentioned quite a few times between the publication of A Feast for Crows and mid-2013, when he admitted it wouldn't be ready in time for the Dangerous Women anthology. Although the third story in the Dunkin' Egg series wouldn't be published until 2010, It seems like the idea for the fourth story had taken hold in George's mind quite early, and possibly even while he was writing The Sorn Sword, given the references to heading north. Based on his statements at Boscone, it appears he had a lot of the third story complete in early 2006, but was worried about rewrites necessitated by a time gap. What happened next is likely a convoluted tale of continuity issues caused by the development of the canon. Since the Mystery Night occurs directly after the Sworn Sword, it appears the time gap was abandoned. Having struggled so mightily with that around a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons, perhaps George couldn't bear to face it on this smaller scale. But the Mystery Night, as we'll see in our next episode, provides some very important backstory for several of the arcs in a Dance with Dragons, and it's easy to see how a lot of content may have needed constant editing and tweaking as he worked on a Dance with Dragons more or less concurrently. It does seem like he was finished with the Mystery Night before the Game of Thrones television series began filming its pilot in 2009, since Adam Whitehead from The Word Zone has reported that by that time, George had started work on the fourth Dunkin' Egg, which had been rolling around in his mind for so long. As George himself would later describe the story, it would involve a disputed succession and be, quote, set in Winterfell with a group of formidable Stark wives, widows, mothers, and grandmothers that I dubbed the She-Wolves, but the She-Wolves of Winterfell was never meant to be more than a working title. The final title, when I finish the story, will be something different. But since the deadline for the Dangerous Women anthology, for which George was trying to complete the story as late as mid-2012, came and went, with The Princess and the Queen ultimately being included in that anthology in 2013 instead, it's possible the task of aligning the story to an ever more complex canon might have become problematic. 
And at this point, it seems like we'll have quite a long wait to find out more since George has said he's committed to finishing The Winds of Winter and possibly even A Dream Spring before he returns to Duncan Egg. As for what was happening in the North in that time period, recall that Dagon Greyjoy had begun raiding the Reach during the drought. Apparently he had turned his attention to the North, since at the beginning of the Mystery Night, Dunk will say, We're headed north to Winterfell. Lord Baron Stark is gathering swords to drive the Krakens from his shores for good. Previously only mentioned in a list of former lords in the Winterfell crypts, the World of Ice and Fire gave us some clarity about Baron Stark via a very complicated Stark family tree. Baron was the son of a Brandon Stark, who was himself the son of Lord Cregan Stark and his third wife, herself also a Stark. Cregan's descendants present quite an intricate family tree with lots of branches and intermarriages, and there are a lot of men, many of whom we can recognize as former lords from their place in the Roll Call of Tombs from Bran in A Clash of Kings. Lord Willem and his brother Artos the Implacable, Lord Donner and Lord Baron and Lord Rodwell, One-Eyed Lord Jonal, Lord Barth and Lord Brandon, and Lord Cregan, who had fought the Dragon Knight. Now, Willem, Artos, and Donner are all Baron's sons, and notably Artos is the only one of those mentioned who is not a lord. While Rodwell is Baron's older brother, Jonal and Barth are his uncles, Brandon is his father and Cregan his grandfather. The wives of these men, any number of whom may have been alive in 211 AC, are an equally impressive roll call of ladies from noble houses. Cregan's wife, Lynara Stark, Jonal's wife, Sansa Stark, Brandon's wife, Alice Carr Stark, Rodwell's wife, Miriam Manderley, and Baron's wife, Laura Royce. Lord Barthigan died unmarried in the Skagosi Rebellion during the reign of Daron II, but he had another brother named Edric, who is married to Serena Stark, sister of the aforementioned Sansa, both of whom were daughters of old Cregan's eldest son, Rickon, who died during the conquest of Dorne. And it's possible that their mother, Jane Manderley, could also still be alive. And so in case you didn't notice, in this batch of Starks, there were two uncle-niece marriages and at least two unions of what seem like cousins. There are a lot of children and several lateral inheritances. So when this story finally makes its way to publication, in addition to many strong women in charge, there could be the usual things like incest and succession struggles that we've come to expect from A Song of Ice and Fire. When Bran has a vision of the past through the eyes of the Winterfell heart tree in A Dance with Dragons, he sees two things that seem like they might intersect with this story. A woman heavy with child emerged naked and dripping from the black pool, knelt before the tree and begged the old gods for a son who would avenge her. Then there came a brown-haired girl, slender as a spear, who stood on the tips of her toes to kiss the lips of a young knight as tall as Hodor. Some readers think the first woman is most likely to be the wife of Lord Willem, who was the son of Baron and was killed by Raymond Redbeard, king beyond the wall at the Battle of Long Lake in 226 AC, and that the child she was praying for was Edwile, grandfather of Ned. Though his death is some years in the future, Willem would have been one of the children during the disputes that will be taking place in the Duncan Egg story. Since Willem appears to have succeeded his father and George mentions that Lord Baron is dying in the Winterfell story, it's even possible the story deals with Duncan Egg having some sort of involvement in his succession. 
As for the second vision, many readers think the young knight is Dunk himself and pegged the young girl as Nan, who eventually went into service at Winterfell as a wet nurse for Willem's first son, Brandon. The comparison to Hodor leads some to surmise that Dunk finally did more than kiss the girl and that he might actually be Hodor's great-grandfather. Hopefully, time will give us answers to both of these questions, and given that the visions originated with Bran, it's even possible we might not have to wait for a new Dunkin' Egg to learn more about these things. Now, other than possibly getting involved in a succession crisis, the actual reason Dunkin' Egg were said to be heading north was to take service with Lord Baron against the Ironborn. Remember that they had considered going to Fair Isle to serve Lord Farman for the same reason in the Sworn Sword, so they're not too far off what they had once intended. In A Dance with Dragons, Theon Greyjoy observes the tombs in the Winterfell crypts and notes the final resting place of, quote, Lord Baron Stark, who made common cause with Casterly Rock to war against Dagon Greyjoy, Lord of Pike, in the days when the Seven Kingdoms were ruled in all but name by the bastard sorcerer men called Bloodraven. Interestingly, this Lord Lannister would have had to be either Tybalt or his brother Gerald, and it doesn't seem like they met with success either, because also in A Dance with Dragons, Victorian Greyjoy would recall this about his ancestor. Almost a hundred years had passed since Dagon Greyjoy sat the seastone chair, but the Ironborn still told tales of his raids and battles. In Dagon's day, a weak king sat the Iron Throne, his roomy eyes fixed across the narrow sea where bastards and exiles plotted rebellion. So forth from Pike, Lord Dagon sailed, to make the sunset see his own. He bearded the lion in his den and tied the direwolf's tail in knots, but even Dagon could not defeat the dragons. The implication would seem to be that while Stark and Lannister will fail in their efforts against the Ironborn, eventually Lord Bloodraven the Hand will have to turn his attention to the Iron Islands, and that raises great possibilities for future histories, and maybe even another Duncan Egg story as well. But with that, I'm just about sliding into the Mystery Night territory, and so I'm going to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining me for this exploration of the Sorn Sword. It's a story of unexpected depths with loads of history and so many side roads for us to explore, not to mention the usual fantastic interplay of Duncan Egg themselves and with the other characters introduced for this story. I hope you've enjoyed the review and analysis and look forward to coming back soon with the final installment of the Duncan Egg series as I take on the Mystery Night, a story that I hope will take us to even more unexpected places than ever. And now, as usual, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks again to Robert from In Deep Geek for voicing Sir Eustace for this episode, and thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us Duncan Egg and their adventures, to Calliope for the artwork, and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. 
Heartfelt thanks to Jill, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Aileen, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K, Marja the Mage, June, John H, Lady of the Frostfangs, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Maltude, Yorlen, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Aerodo, Marcel, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion, Theoden, Joseph of House Rulo, Christian, Jonathan, Blythe Spirit, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Amber, Alex, Mary, Adam, Convenience or Death, Jessica, David, Amanda, Crystal, Melinda, Chris, Alex, Faye, Sebastian, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, AJ, Arian, Greg, Steve, Zainab, Jean, Megan, Brendan B. Fish, Yvonne, Rachel, Felix, Brian, Matt, Rachel Mary, Jose, Michael, Major Woody, Tanner, Iden, Quincy, Dimitri, Ellie, Direwolf, Martin, Lady Louise of House Taylor, the Rain Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne, Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves and Keeper of the Sacred Bear Den, Spend Trails, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Andres, War and Peace, Wildling Ranger of the Night's Watch, Slayer of Others and Defender of the Night Fort, and the Wolverine Knight, whose sigil is crushed Buckeye Nuts on a maze field. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on iTunes, YouTube, or Spotify. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, or by email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Bye for now.